You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 58, Goals. Marina Miljavskaya is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology here at Carleton University. And her research focuses on how people set and pursue goals in different areas of their lives. Now, we had a um, episode on control and how your mind decides what to do at any given time. And we talked about goals being part of the uh, cognitive system. And uh, Marina is an expert on goals. So, uh, Marina, let's start at the beginning. Sometimes people have opportunities to do things, like uh, there'll be an opportunity and they'll take it. Um, And that's sort of different from goal-oriented behavior. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about why goals are important? Sure, yeah. So goals give you something concrete to aim for. And setting a goal demonstrates commitment. It's a first step, showing to yourself that you're serious, that this is something you actually want. It distinguishes something you really actually want and will work towards from something that's just a fantasy. So sure, I could say I'd like to lose weight, but unless I make it a goal, odds are it's not going to happen. And so having the goal helps shore up the motivation to work towards it. And we see this in research. Looking at New Year's resolutions, which are specific types of goals, people who made a New Year's resolution compared to people who had a behavior they wanted to change but didn't make a resolution, six months later, those who made a resolution, about 50% actually did the behavior, compared to only 4% who thought of a behavior they'd want to change but didn't set a goal or resolution. So that's a really large difference. And other research also finds that when people set a goal to aim for versus something like try your best, they generally work harder and are more likely to achieve more. So you can have a behavior you want to change without a goal? Yeah, it depends on how much you actually want it and how whether it's something you're committed and you will actually work for. So, for example, I might want to win the lottery, but that's just a fantasy unless... You know, um, because it might be out of my control. But for behavior change, um, somebody might say, sure, I'd like to work out, but they don't actually take any of the steps. So unless there's a certain amount of commitment to it or a specific end target, um, that's not really a goal. Yeah, that makes sense. I I remember hearing some people say, oh, I need to win the lottery, but they don't even play it. So (laughs) it's it's something that they kind of want, but they clearly don't have a goal. Um, So... Some, I think goal choice is probably pretty important, right? Uh, first of all, like what goals you pick really matters. So are some goals better than others? And what kinds of goals do you think people should have? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, there's some things about goals that make them better than other goals. Um, and you may have heard about SMART goals. That's a mnemonic that I find pretty helpful. There are a few different variations of what SMART stands for. Uh, Here are the ones I like to use, and I actually throw in an extra A in there. So S for specific. This is about how concrete versus abstract something is. So a goal of saving money versus a goal of put aside money into my savings account every week. The first is more abstract and the other much more specific. So you want those specific kind of goals. And related to this, M stands for measurable. So a goal to lose weight versus a goal to lose five pounds. Having a number attached to the goal helps you monitor progress to know it uh, when it's accomplished or how close or far away you're getting from that goal. Then A is for attainable. So it should be something that's realistic for you that you could reasonably attain. For example, if I want to start doing push-ups and right away set a goal to do a set of 100 push-ups, there's just no way. 
And when I start trying and see how far I am, I would get discouraged. So goals that are too difficult or impossible are demotivating. But that doesn't mean it should be easy. So if my goal is to do five push-ups, sure, I'll be able to do it. But I would have been able to do a lot more if my goal was, let's say, 10 or 20 push-ups. And a lot of research on performance finds that when people set more difficult goals, they reach a higher level of attainment. Because as long as you have the required skills, you will push yourself more than when the standards are lower. So as another example, when the COVID lockdown started, I started running. And I've now been doing it pretty regularly for two years now. And usually I have a set pace that I run at. But sometimes if I run with my husband, who runs faster, I push myself to keep up with him. So the goal, or in this case, the pace I try to achieve is higher, and that pushes me to work harder, and I'm able to do better. So having that slightly more difficult goal can push you past your limits, again, as long as it's something that's attainable. So I like to add another A in there, in the SMART mnemonic, for a, this one's for approach. And this is to distinguish goals that are about getting closer to something you want versus avoidance goals that are all about an outcome we don't want or we want to try to avoid. So an avoidance goal would be something like, I don't want to feel depressed. An approach goal instead is, I want to take care of my mental health. And approach goals are generally better because they focus on the ways that the goal can be attained. So taking care of your mental health may mean engaging in activities that make you feel good, Things like spending time with others, um, recognizing when you're feeling stressed. And avoidance goals are generally more chaotic. They come with worry or concern about not achieving them. So instead of focusing on productive things that you can do to help, you become vigilant and look for things that may harm the goal. So next is R for relevant. And this is my favorite one. Uh, this is about how personally relevant or meaningful the goal is to you. Is it something you truly want to do or something you feel like you have to be doing for someone else or because you feel bad or guilty if you didn't do it? And this distinction is sometimes referred to as autonomous versus controlled goals. So autonomous goals are those that are interesting or enjoyable or that you pursue because they are really important and meaningful to you. And they generally tend to fit where there are other goals and who we are. You could contrast that with controlled goals or the things you feel like you have to or should be doing. And there's a lot of research showing that autonomous goals are much more beneficial, both for attaining the goal as well as for general well-being. So people are happier when they're doing things that they really want to be doing. And working on these goals doesn't feel as effortful. If you have goals that are controlled, that you feel like you have to do, then you need to put in more effort. And people generally face more obstacles when it comes to these kinds of have-to goals. Uh, there's some research suggesting that Basically, people are sabotaging themselves when they are choosing goals that aren't personally relevant and meaningful. And they're pursuing these goals because they feel like it's something they should be doing. Um, they have to work harder at them because of this kind of balance, um, because the, of the ambivalence of the conflict they're feeling. There's more obstacles. They create more obstacles for themselves. And then they have to work even harder at them. And finally, the T in SMART stands for time-bound. And that means that it's good to specify a time frame for when to work on or when to achieve the goal. So instead of a goal to lose two pounds, you could set the goal to lose two pounds in the next month. And that's a goal that has a specific time attached to it. And doing that prevents you from putting it off indefinitely. Oh, that's cool. So SMART stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Yes, and I like to add an extra A in there for approach. 
for the approach, right? So it should be something you want to do. Something you want to get close to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about breaking it up into s- small pieces? I-, I think sometimes people get these very ambitious goals that are years away and uh, they-, they-, they can feel overwhelming. Is there, any- is there any research on breaking up goals into more manageable chunks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, breaking up a goal can definitely help when it helps you focus and make kind of concrete plans on what you can do next and so that it doesn't feel as overwhelming. And especially at the beginning of goal pursuit, when you're kind of not sure where to go, when things can feel overwhelming, breaking it down can help with that. Okay, great. All right, let's talk about once you have a goal, let's say you've picked a very smart goal <laughs> with two A's, and uh, once you have this goal, what are some, what's some advice you can give us about how best to pursue a goal? Well, the best thing you can do with goals is to try to be- make the behaviors that help with that goal or that help you move towards your goal fit into your overall routines. So make them habitual. I know there was an earlier podcast episode you guys have done on habits, uh, but generally incorporating the behaviors into your routine so they become automatic and it's not something you have to think about. That makes it easier to pursue your goals. And to help with that, you can do something called setting implementation plans or implementation intentions. This involves setting up a specific time or place or event, some sort of cue that will trigger your behavior. So fill in the blanks. If or when blank, I will blank. So for example, if my goal is to go to the gym, I may say, if it's Tuesday or Thursday at 5 p.m., I will go to the gym. So it can be time-related, but it also might be related to another event. So, for example, in the morning, when I'm done brushing my teeth, I will do 10 push-ups. So it's related to brushing teeth to an event that's already occurring. Yeah, this, this is great. I, I do this kind of thing a lot. I think people should really work to get their habits to be in line with their overall goals. Um, a, a funny story, when I was uh, going to record that episode on habits, I went back and listened to our control episode because I didn't want to cover the same material too much. And uh, in in that one, I heard myself saying that I eat vegetables with breakfast every morning. And this shocked me because I'd totally forgotten about that and stopped doing it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when I heard it again, I started it back up again. So every morning I have like a a salad with with an egg or something like that. Um, But because mornings are more routine in other parts of the day for most people, uh, I, I find mornings are really great for installing good habits and so now I'm back to eating like some vegetables uh, with my breakfast every morning and I don't have to make, you know, new plans every day to get like that serving of vegetables. Um, and then I, I have similar plans for like these stretches I'm supposed to do. And, you know, I, I dislike doing them so much. You know, sometimes I find it uh, hard to comply. Even if I set up an implementation intention to like always do the exercises when this, uh, it's pretty hard to comply sometimes. When uh, you have goals that you don't really feel like doing, sometimes... Maybe there's something you could do that's kind of more fun or more um, enjoyable because as I was talking before about kind of goals that we feel like we have to do or should do, um, that comes with these kind of sabotage behaviors. If it's not something you truly want to do, maybe picking something more relevant um, or making it more fun, more enjoyable in some other way could be something that's helpful. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, I listened to audiobooks and then I bought an Apple Watch just so I could use the timer function uh, just to mm-hmm. make it, it make it as pleasant as possible, but it's still hard. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and sometimes it also helps 
after setting the goal is to think about what kinds of things could get in the way of the goals. So some of the obstacles you might anticipate um, and not feeling like doing something is also an obstacle, right? But then planning for what you will do when you encounter those obstacles and setting your implementation plans around those obstacles. So maybe you really want to start going to the gym, but when you come home from work, your partner says, oh, let's go watch TV. So your implementation plan might be when my partner asks me to watch TV, I will say in an hour and go to the gym first. So you have a script prepared for these occasions and you don't have to decide in the moment what you will do. Or if your goal is to eat healthy, if you're hungry and you go to the cafeteria at lunch, you know you might be tempted by the pizza or the muffins. So put a script or plan in place for yourself. When I go to the cafeteria, I will buy a salad. Yeah, I, f I find this so powerful because, you know, uh, trying to take away the choices in your day, I think, you know, that it's such a cognitive load to have to decide, like, what should I do? And it is amazing how just having an intention in your head, oh, in this situation, I do this. It's just my policy. Uh, just, just making that explicit in your own mind. Uh, it's really amazing how much that can um, help you do the act the way you really want to in this world. Yeah, and uh, planning to set up your environment in such a way that you don't encounter these obstacles. And so that can help you avoid these kind of having to use cognitive control or willpower or having to decide what to do in the moment because it's out of your hands. And there's this idea out there that it's this willpower or effortful control that's so important for goals. But more recently, research that has looked into it finds that those who are considered to have higher self-control can, that can attain their goals better aren't actually better at controlling themselves. They experience fewer obstacles in their environment. So there are fewer things that conflict with their goals. And this is in research using something called experience sampling, where participants are contacted multiple times a day on their smartphones and asked about how they're feeling in the moment. So we get real-time experiences. And this research finds that those people who on self-rating scales report having the best self-control, they don't actually use more control in the moment to resist temptations. Instead, they experience fewer temptations and the temptations they do experience are less strong and less tempting. And it is this experience of facing temptations that is then related to the progress that they make on their goals. And how well they can control themselves in the moment is actually unrelated to their overall goal progress. So setting up your environment to encounter fewer obstacles or temptations is something you can do to better pursue your goal. And instead of trying to force yourself to resist the temptations you do encounter, you can use some other strategies. Um, distract yourself, remind yourself of your goals, change your situation. There are many others that may be particularly relevant to a given situation, but the more of these tools you can think of and use, the better equipped you'll be when the temptation does strike. Because in the moment when you're faced with a temptation, it's really hard to just say no. So like imagine being offered a chocolate cake when you're hungry. Right, <laughs> right. You can walk away, remind yourself of your goal, ask the other person to move the cake farther from you. It can be a little bit easier. Yeah, I love, I, I love this so much because you can set up your environment during a time when you're not particularly tempted, right? So like you, maybe when you're full you can like throw away the rest of the cookies. I remember there was a scene in Sex in the City where the, this woman threw, threw the cake in the garbage and then covered it with dish soap so she wouldn't mm -hmm. eat it out of the garbage. Um, but like, you know, it's easier to 
you know, get rid of like junk food in your house when you're not hungry and you're sort of making it easier for your future self. Because if you're trying to get rid of junk food while you're hungry, of course, you're, you're relying on your willpower. And uh, that's, re that's really neat that because, yeah, people do associate goal achievement with willpower. But uh, that's really nice that there's um, uh, evidence out there that shows that that we're just that those people are just better at engineering their environment. Um, let's talk about how public you make these goals. So I heard now, you know, maybe, maybe I can't, I gotta need to maybe find this study, but I, I heard that there was some study where if you tell people about your goals, they can be so uh, effusive about congratulating you that you feel so good that your, your, your desire to actually do the hard work to achieve them gets reduced. Um, but I also know that um, telling people things sort of commits you in a way. Um, so what is the, what does the research say about how public you should make your goals to your friends and loved ones? So it's true that sometimes the small steps we take towards our goals feel good. And so they feel like progress, like we're large part of the way there. And then we feel like we don't need to take the next steps. So for example, um, people just joining the gym feels like an accomplishment, right? And then <laughs> right. we don't bother going. So I suppose that telling friends and getting that positive feedback could act that way. But generally, telling other people about goals has many more positive outcomes. And like you mentioned, it increases commitment. Uh, that's probably the largest one. So once you vocalize your goal, you share it with others, there's a bigger psychological cost associated with not doing it. Because right. there's someone the else cost. who realizes that you have failed or that you haven't done mm -hmm. what you set out to do. So others can help hold you accountable. And for example, research on how people monitor goals so how people keep track of their goal progress finds that keeping track of progress is much more effective for eventual attainment when you share your progress or lack thereof with at least one other person. So making it public. Yeah, so like team, teaming up with somebody who has a similar goal is probably particularly great, right? Because then you you're, you both understand it and you keep each other accountable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it can be really positive to work on shared goals together. Uh, hold each other accountable. So if you have a gym buddy, for example, and the two mm, of you go right. to the gym together, or you mentioned mentioned writing a novel. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've had people <laughs> say they want to write a novel and then <laughs> they get everyone says, good for you, and then they don't write it. <laughs> yeah, so creating a writing group where you get together for a certain time every week, and during that time, for a few hours, you're actively working on your writing. And this is something I've actually done with colleagues and with students when we work on papers. And it helps because it's so much harder to cancel something when you have another person who's depending on you and counting on you doing the activity with them. It's much easier to just say, I'm not going to write today. I'm going to do something else if it's just you at your computer. But if somebody else is there with you, uh, whether virtually or physically, it's much tougher to ignore that commitment or break that plan. That feeling you're working together with others, even if you're alone in the moment, can also increase motivation and persistence. Yeah, the the I think this is also related to measurement in a way, because if you're telling other people your progress, in a way, that's kind of a measurement, you know. Um, I'm not in a writing group, but I do. what I do is I keep track of my words per day. So I have this spreadsheet with every single day for the last five years, and I have all the books I'm working on, and I put in the word count when it changes and the spreadsheet calculates how many new words I wrote that day. <laughs> so when I'm in the midst of writing a book, I try to do a thousand words a day. And it's it's a really tough thing, but it's incredibly motivating. Just that really objective measurement, you know, and um, so I really, I really, I, I find that 
super helpful. But yeah, back to friends, right? So that research actually compared sharing the plans with others versus just writing it down. And so it was sharing it with others is better than just writing it down for yourself. But just writing it down is better than um, kind of monitoring without actually writing things down. So yes, just a simple act of keeping track on something like physically so you can see the progress over time as opposed to just taking note or thinking about it definitely helps. But if you could share that, you know, your spreadsheet with words with someone else, that might be even better. Yeah. I, you know, though, I, I, I just worry. I don't know if there's any research on this, but it's like if two people have a similar goal and one is doing so much better than the other, does like, is that really like depressing and demotivating for the other person? <laughs> uh, there's That's one where there's some mixed research because it's partly depends on how close you are to the person. Because if you think of yourselves as kind of one group or like a we, then having somebody else uh, make a lot of progress might feel like you're both making progress together and then you don't have to act as much. Well, if like a husband and wife both want to run more and one of them is, well, running they might do together, but let's just say going to the gym and they go to separate gyms or whatever. And one of them is like going every day and the other is like, I mean, it, it, you, it's not like the, the, the other person would feel like, oh, that person's working out for the two of us. <laughs> well, so some, there's some evidence on, uh, at least in the lab, that some of that does happen. Really? Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. But uh, it's one of those fields where there's kind of like mixed findings and there's lots of different moderators. So in some cases it works and other specific instances it doesn't. So kind of nuanced. Uh, we'll have to have you back in 10 years and give us an update on that. <laughs> you want to talk about like the, the emotional support that uh, sharing goals with friends gives you? Absolutely. So friends and other people in your life can play a positive role by offering support. And certain types of support are better than others. And the best kind of support is not necessarily encouraging and kind of cheerleading, which is what we often think of as emotional support or just general support, but the friend or partner who fully listens to you and tries to understand you and how you want to go about achieving your goal without necessarily giving advice or making suggestions. So someone who believes in you, accepts you whether you reach your goal or not. And that feeling of being understood and being heard can actually enhance your autonomous motivation for pursuing the goal. That's the want-to motivation I spoke of earlier. So pursuing a goal because it's something you really want to do. And that can help with the actual goal pursuit. And it's related to greater well-being and strong relationships. So the next time a friend or family member or partner tells you about their goals, take the time to truly listen rather than offer advice or um, kind of encourage and them on right away. That feels very, that feels directed directly to me. So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> When we talk about uh, companies sometimes, we're, we like them when they're agile and they can change direction when they need to. But for some reason, when we talk about individuals, there's this idea that you should never give up. And But you shouldn't always keep your goals, should you? Uh, is, there a, is it sometimes good to abandon your goals? Yeah, knowing when to quit is definitely important. Uh, and this is sometimes referred to as a disengagement paradox. Giving up on a goal may not be great for attainment of the goal itself, because obviously, if you give up on it, you're not attaining it. But it is better for well-being and mental health, uh, especially if it's a goal that your odds of attaining it are very, very, very small at this point. And ultimately, it can help you achieve other goals. So overall, it may be more worthwhile. 
And sometimes the effort that would be required for a goal might be more than the benefits you would get for the goal. So it's smart to know when to retreat and invest your effort elsewhere, pursue a different goal. Yeah, you can only do so many things in your life. And if you've got like a goal sort of sitting there, taking up a slot, uh, there's a opportunity cost there. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're holding back not only your other goals, but goals you might have. You didn't have that goal that's no longer working for you. Now, sometimes you'll have a goal and it'll just fail. Like you might have a goal to get elected or something like that. Um, so what does science say about what you should do when you fail to achieve one of your goals? Well, everyone fails sometimes, and that's normal and part of life. And um, you may have heard about learning from failure, but there's actually some evidence that that's very difficult to do and that often we don't learn from failure. What we can... Uh, yeah, because in the moment where it's really hard cognitively to kind of accept the criticism and process what's going on. Um, so some research more recently has been has looked at that directly, um, showing that it doesn't work very well, despite that being kind of a common thing. But what we so what we sometimes do instead is beat ourselves up or we get down on ourselves for failing. Uh, and that has negative implications or consequences for mental health, for well-being, and also how, for how we pursue our goals in the future. So the flip side of that, the better approach, is to use self-compassion. And what do I mean by self-compassion? Uh, well, there are three components to that. So first, treating yourself with kindness, care, and concern in the face of negative life events, such as failure. And generally treating yourself with the same kindness you would treat a friend who failed. So you wouldn't tell your friend you're worthless, and you shouldn't say that to yourself either. The second part is recognizing that failing and experiencing life difficulties is inevitable. It's part of our shared human experience. So it's something we all go through and not something that happens to you alone. And finally, self-compassion involves being mindful of or recognizing how negative emotions and negative thoughts can spiral out of control. So I made a mistake can become I am a mistake or I failed at this goal can become I am a failure. So taking care not to exaggerate our negative thoughts and emotions, uh, but not ignoring them either, kind of keeping that balance. Yeah, this it's interesting. There's, you know, we, you want the goals to be attainable, but ambitious. And um, I, I think this, this failure, everybody fails sometimes. Not only does everybody fail sometimes, but I think in many, many cases, the most successful people fail more than unsuccessful people. I know, um, you know, for as a scientist, you know, I get I get papers rejected, I get grants rejected, and um, but you know, the, you have to fail a lot. If you're not failing, sometimes you're probably not living at your maximum capacity. You're probably you know just being a little too safe. And I find that comforting sometimes to think about, like uh, that that failure failure at some of your goals is a sign that you're actually uh, pushing yourself, you know, to, at the right level of challenge. Absolutely. Uh... The more you try, the more you will fail, right? And so that's just kind of part of part of life. Yeah, you, you, you try a lot and you succeed more and you fail more, but ultimately <laughs> you do well. Um, so what happens when people don't do that? Like if they beat themselves up instead of forgiving themselves, what, what happens? Yeah, so this tendency to beat yourself up is called self-criticism, and it's linked to all sorts of negative outcomes, uh, including greater depression and anxiety, also reduced goal progress. Because when we're beating ourselves up, we then tend to focus on the shoulds, and our motivation is more controlled. 
but it's also something very common in people who are highly perfectionistic. So if they don't do something perfectly, it's not good enough, and then they beat themselves up. And people sometimes think that perfectionism is a good thing, but since most perfectionism comes with this self-critical tendency, it actually winds up hurting you more. Yeah, you know, per I, I perfectionism, I'm always trying to get my own students to get rid of perfectionism. <laughs> One of my things that I'm, I was good at in uh, graduate school was that I was really what I would say, I'm really good at giving my advisor a crappy first draft. And so the, the students next to me would be like agonizing over the text of paragraphs that their advisor would eventually cut completely. <laughs> Meanwhile, I would have gone through three drafts before they were like happy with their perfect one. And um, I, yeah, I think perfectionism is, is it, it's not people, it's more of a problem than people realize it is, you know, Absolutely. And, and especially when you're in a team environment or whatever, like having Rapid iteration on drafts of things is, is, is far more important. Absolutely. And there's so much research out now about how damaging perfectionism can be. It's like the classic safe thing to say in a job interview, like, what's your, what's your biggest... Uh... Don't say that. It's not actually good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I have a student telling me that, that's a big red flag. But uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, everyone is hard on themselves sometimes. And these negative thoughts about themselves, occasionally that happens again to everyone. So it's a matter of trying to see a more balanced picture, which of course is sometimes easier said than done. And cognitive behavior therapy often focuses on this, changing the way we th think to be more balanced and less kind of blamey, uh, blame yourself less. Um, and practicing self-compassion can help. So being kind to yourself, reminding yourself that everyone feels that way sometimes. Yeah, I, so I I know this is uh, your area of research. Do you want to tell us something that you've uh, been work that you've worked on, or maybe something that you're excited about that you're working on now? Sure. So some of what I mentioned above is actually based on the research I've done. So, for example, the study on how people react to temptation in real life, and how it's the experience of temptation, um, not the act of controlling yourself, that then leads to greater eventual goal progress. So that was something that I worked on. Um, I'm excited about some new research I'm doing now that tries to better understand how people spontaneously talk or think about their goals and how much that plays a role in goal attainment. But we've only started data collection on that, so stay tuned. Okay, great. Is there, is there like a big mystery in, your, in the field of goals? Like if you could like uh, ask, uh, ask God like one question, like <laughs> to resolve something, is there some big mystery out there? Well, I think in general with despite like everything you, we know and everything that like all these different aspects of it, we can still explain very, very little of um, goal pursuit, like in terms of our ability um, of like what proportion of the variance can we explain? And I know I'm getting kind of technical here, but like how good are we at explaining or predicting when somebody attains their goals versus not? we're actually not that great. So like, yeah, we talk about all these things we know, but that makes, you know, a one, a 2% difference. So there's so much more out there um, that would do a better job explaining it potentially. And that's what we're, you know, trying to figure that out, I think. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm turning now towards how people spontaneously think or talk about their goals, because maybe there's something that we as scientists kind of missed. So we have all these theories about what's important, but you know, maybe there's something else we're just not thinking of. Yeah, and I'm uh, uh, I'm a cognitive scientist, and when I think about goals, I think about what's their representation and how do they get used and remembered. Uh, how do you, what's the nature of abandoned goals and 
you know, how does the representation change when it's like an active goal or a priority goal? And how do we, how does the mind represent all that stuff? And yeah, so it's wide open. And um, if you're uh, interested in goal research, it uh, sounds like there's a lot to do. Um, there is. And it's interesting because there's so many areas that are studying goals, but they're approaching it from very different viewpoints. Right. And so the other thing is linking all these pieces of the puzzle together, I think, is uh, challenging because everybody has kind of their perspective or the thing they focus on. But then that doesn't necessarily translate to goal pursuit in real life. So like people's goal representations, you know, which are often studied in the lab in very controlled conditions. How does that then translate to what people do in daily life? I think is a big question. Yeah. So there's work to do. They probably use different vocabularies and go to different conferences and everything. Yep, so there's exactly. bridging Absolutely. work to be done. Mm -hmm. Not always uh, uh, career rewarding, but important work. <laughs> Has investigation into the uh, topic of goals changed the way you live your own life? And uh, do you have an example of how you might have changed something in your life based on what you've learned about goals? Yeah, um, I definitely set my plans in the form of implementation intentions. So make concrete plans tied to specific situations like time and place. Um, but I think that even with knowing all these tips and tricks, meeting goals is still challenging. So it's always a work in progress for me. Yeah, I think I think for everybody, it's it's something to be. It's not something you get done and done perfectly. It's something that you monitor and curate throughout your life, and you should be reflecting on your goals and how best to get them, and what goals you should have, and which ones you should give up. It's always a work in progress. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Marina, for coming in. Thank you for having me. Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.